It's all about me. Uh, I learned this from my father. He, uh, it's sort of been a refrain in our household for a fairly long time now. Um, I don't know, it's at least 10 years old. That's when I really started picking up on it. Uh, it's something that he says pretty frequently to describe uh, the way things ought to be. Uh, so if he wants to watch NCIS, which is a television show that I've never seen, He'll put on the TV, and uh, my daughters are there, and they want to watch, um, you know, Jake and the Neverland Pirates or Peppa Pig or whatever it is. And he just grabs the the, the remote control from them, and he flips on uh, NCIS, and they begin to cry. And he looks at them, and he says, "It's all about me. Be quiet," which totally works. Uh, or if, for example, you know, we're over there, and I was hoping. Maybe to have, uh, you know, because we can't afford any meat in our house, so we have to go there to get, you know, decent steak. But he's decided that, you know what, we're not, we're going to do lasagna tonight. And I'm like, Dad, you know, it's kind of a treat for me to, to get something like that. It, it's all about me, Tom. I got it. All right. Fair enough. I'll just. But of course, the reason he says that, and you and I know this, you and I know this, the reason he says that is because it's actually not all about him. Right? It, it, it's actually, uh, most of his life is actually spent um, not being about himself. Number one reason, because he's married. And you cannot be married and make it all about you all the time. Or at least not successfully. Unless you get like, I, I got a mail order bride. I've read about that. Uh, but even that I don't think works. And so he's looking at his life and he's, it's almost like, it's almost prophetic, right? He's almost calling out into the future someday. Truly, it will finally be all about me. But in the meantime, he has to sort of make do with what he's got. And so on those few little parts of his life where he can carve out that precious little bit of selfishness, he cries almost longingly, it's all about me. Today's text is one in which Jesus is going to call out in our lives in two places where we assume, we deeply, deeply think, we, we, we simply can't think any other way other than it's all about me. And Jesus' point, as we'll see, is no, it's not. If you have your note sheets, um, please stand and let's read together the text. This is from Luke 20, 27 to 36. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked, saying, Teacher, Moses, in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10, wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and, he, and the first took a wife and died childless. Then uh, the second took her, oh, I'm sorry, died without children, and the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in, a, in like manner, the seven also, and they left no children and died. Seven brothers, one wife. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, teacher... 
In the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. And Jesus answered and said to them, The sons or children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore, for they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. You may be seated. It's frankly a disturbing text. I mean, start to finish. We just have to put that out there on the table. Uh, Aaron, she says she's sick, um, and, and that's why she's not here. I think it's because she doesn't like dealing with this text. I know that this is true because actually early on in the dating uh, period, I was like, look, don't get too attached because, uh, you know, come, come heaven, come resurrection. I mean, no matter what happens, we're, gonna be, we're not going to be married. And she burst into tears. And I'm super sensitive like that. Uh, it, but not only do we have this, this the no marriage in heaven, which is disturbing in its own right, very strange to us, but we also have this bizarre practice of brothers marrying wives. Uh, it's called leveret marriage. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's weird. It's weird. I mean, the first one gets a wife, he dies. The next one takes her on, he dies. I mean, it goes on. And so this woman has, has been wife to seven men. And, and, and it seems as though really through no um, action or, or per- perhaps even any desire of her own, it's, it appears uh, definitely to us uh, very patriarchal and it, it, very strange. Why would anyone do this? So there's a couple weird things going on in this text. And as we look at it today, I want us to think about the reasoning behind uh, this law about the brothers and, and, and the wife. And I want us to think uh, uh, behind the reasoning that there might not be marriage and giving in marriage in the resurrection of the dead. And I want us to think that ultimately, ultimately, what marriage and what resurrection are about is not us. A little bit of context. Uh, this is the last uh, week or so of Jesus' life. He's in the temple. He's had the triumphal entry, and he's teaching in the temple every day. He's going to be crucified in a few days. And he's out there, and he's, he's being tested, really, by the re- religious and uh, elites of Israel, because they, they don't like him, for the most part, and they, they want to trip him up. Some of them want to kill him. And then there's this group of people called the Sadducees. And, and notice Luke uh, notes, they deny that there is a resurrection. Well, the Sadducees, and we have this from uh, jo- Josephus, you can actually think of them a little bit like um, the Episcopalians of ancient Israel. Uh, if you've ever been to an Episcopalian church, my father grew up Episcopalian. Maybe that indicates a little bit about the it's all about me thing. We'll think about that. Episcopalians uh, tend to be a little more uh, reserved, a little more proper. Uh, it's, not, it's not all fun and games, not a lot of emotion, usually. In fact, uh, Episcopalians sort of look at evangelicals like us and they're like... Whoa. You guys, come on. Is it really worth jumping and clapping and singing about? Come on, easy, easy. Let's make things a little more conservative, a little more serious. Uh, these uh, Episcopalians tend to be people from, who have long uh, uh, families in, in the United States of America. Uh, they, they, they can trace their relatives back up to uh, the Mayflower, things like that. A lot of times you can uh, think of Episcopalians as people who maybe have connections to power, their hand, uh, hands on the levers of power. Maybe they have old families, old money. These are kind of some of the images we get of Episcopalians in our culture, well, it's very similar in, uh, the, in ancient Israel. The Sadducees are a lot like that. And uh, they're also known as the Episcopalians are for, well, 
I think, uh, known for being very biblical. They really care about the scriptures, um, the Sadducees do. And of course, for them, the scriptures are Moses and the prophets. And very seriously, they take the law of Moses and Torah. And because they are serious about the Bible, because they are serious about Deuteronomy and Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, they think that the idea of resurrection is silly. It's a little bit ridiculous. It might even be threatening. Why is that? Well, we can actually figure it out if we sort of look at the, uh, the, the, the question they ask and the text that, from which it derives. It's from uh, Deuteronomy, as I noted when we were reading. Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. Let me just read it for you. If you'd like to look it up in your pew Bibles, you can. But just kind of listen. And, and, and listen for uh, the language about children. Listen uh, for the language um, about legacy and name. Hear this, hear this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her, bro- her husband's brother shall go unto her, take her his, as his wife. And perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. His duty, what does it result in? It shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And it goes on to tell a little bit about what will happen if the man refuses this sacred duty. And it turns out that. His brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called, his, the, the failing brother's name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Well, in ancient Israel, if you had no sandal, that was an indication of poor, uh, being poor and homeless. And so if the brother refuses to go and do his duty and really produce an heir for his dead brother, then he is spat on and he is spoken of as homeless, a failure. He's ashamed. If he doesn't do the right thing, his name is drawn through the mud. So you have to wonder, what is the riddle that the Sadducees are posing. What is marriage really about? Okay? Uh, so you've got the resurrection, right? And they're trying to show that the resurrection doesn't work. And in the resurrection, we're all there, and everyone's looking around, and there's these seven men and one wife. What is the problem with that? What's the problem with that if you're thinking about it in terms of Deuteronomy? Right? The problem is, and this is something that we can think very clearly about, is that if she has a baby... No one's going to know who the daddy is. Right? Seven husbands, one wife, they're all raised up together. Presumably they have to keep going. They haven't been divorced. They're, they're, it's polygamy, a very strange kind of polygamy. And what happens is that she, assume, assumingly at some point, gets pregnant, and then no one's going to know who the child is. And then there's going to be a confusion about who, in the resurrection of the dead, who, who the, uh, the, the, the child's father is, whose name he carries on, what property uh, sh- he should inherit. Everything gets really, really confused. Very, very quickly, everything that we think about uh, in terms of stability of the family gets really, really bad. If you look at the, at the Deuteronomy text, you can come up with three things 
that marriage is about. And all of them are going to be confounded if there is resurrection or marriage in the resurrection. Those three things are my glory, my projects, my family. You, you, you notice that the, the language of that text, one of them dies, has no son. His, his name might be blotted out of Israel. His glory, his legacy is going to be wiped out because he has no children. His projects, whatever he undertook in this life, uh, developing probably farmland and building up a household, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to just fade away because he has no child. The family of which he is a part will disintegrate and be forgotten. All because he has no heir. My glory, my projects, my family are all bound up in the notion of marriage. That's what marriage is about. And the reason we can't have marriage in the resurrection, the reason why this riddle works for the Sadducees is because they they point out, they say, look, as soon as you put this weird situation, seven husbands, one wife, everything gets confused. There's no, no chance for my glory to be passed on. No chance for us to know whose project needs to be carried on. Our family is quickly going to dissolve into bickering and hatred and anger. It's interesting. You never get a law in the Old Testament against polygamy as such, which is a little strange. By the time of the New Testament, it is condemned. It's a frowned upon practice. Uh, but it never, it's never explicitly said this is no and so we can see then one of the problems with polygamy, one of, the, one of the things that marriage law is meant to safely, is to secure, is my glory, my projects, my family. And every single one of those things is compromised if there is a resurrection and if the seven brothers and the one wife are all there together. Uh, you'll notice about um, the uh, glory and the legacy. It's interesting. Uh, so glory, my glory, my legacy, my name will be carried on. And if the brother refuses to do that, what happens to his glory? What happens to his name? It's tarnished. You're known as the one with no sandal, the homeless failure, right? You can see how deeply embedded glory, legacy, name is into marriage. You can see how deeply family matters in marriage. One of the, it's, it, we've seen it time and time again in our own church, how devastating, how trying, how, how challenging it can be for a couple to struggle trying to get pregnant. Because we know intuitively, we know deeply that passing on what we have to the next generation is critical. It's part of what marriage is about. In fact, it might be the center of marriage. Moreover, I mean, okay, so the Sadducees, they don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in resurrection, right? Why are some of these things so important? Because when you die, who will remember you? What about all the things that you spent your years doing? What happens to them? Here lies Ozymandias, king of kings. That's John Keats. He wrote this poem. It's, it's awesome. Like the narrator is walking along in the desert, and he sees this, this sort of like half-buried statue, and he dusts, dusts it off, and it says, Here lies Ozymandias, king of kings, whose name shall not perish from the earth. It's all about legacy, right? And the point of the poem is, of course, who, who's Ozymandias? And I guess your name did sort of perish from the earth, friend. But you can see the pull. You can see the pull of wanting to have something last about what you're doing here. To have children who will remember you, grandchildren who will hold your name up. 
You want to have, you want to believe that the business that you built, the things that you spent your time doing won't just be gone. And the only way that happens, the most important way that happens is through marriage. That's what marriage is about. And every single one of those things is compromised. Impossible. If you have seven husbands and one wife in the resurrection. Moreover, think about the kind of world that you must believe in, that you must assume is, 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 is the case if you're to think about marriage in terms of, of projects and, and, and name. Well, you're assuming that the whole world, your economic, your social life, everything is centered around the family. We at this church, of all people, should be very, very conscious. This is, if you don't know, if you haven't been to the website, if you have not been to the website, we are a, quote, family Bible church. There's two things, three things. Three things you're going to get here. Family, Bible, grace. We do that over and over and over again. We assume that family is the center of our economic, social life. Everything is built around this group of people and the way that we love each other. And that's completely assumed by this teaching about marriage in Deuteronomy. My glory, my projects, my family, these are what marriage is about. And if you're following on your note sheets, resurrection and, and marriage don't mix in the Sadducees' riddle because no one will be able to determine the father of an heir. And because of that, everything, everything that marriage appears to be about is destroyed and lost. So the Sadducees are like, okay, Jesus, here's the deal. If you've got resurrection and you've got this situation, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And you know what Jesus says? Interestingly, if you just boil down his response, it's like, yep, nailed it. You're right. Marriage, resurrection, they don't mix. You got a good point, fellas. I like your riddle because it really brings out a problem. It really, it really just lays it out. You're right. We can't do both. Here's the problem, though, fellas. Resurrection? Yes. Marriage? No. This is what you call in philosophical circles biting the bullet. When you have an argument, and there's two things that you really want to hold on to, and you find out that they're incompatible, they can't work together, you've got to choose one, and then you've got to bite the bullet and let the other one go. Jesus is standing up in front of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and everybody else, and he says, there will be resurrection. But that marriage that you think life is about, the glory, the projects, the family, now if you're the Sadducees, or maybe you're us, this is heartbreaking. Think about the way the Sadducees see the world. Marriage and family is right at the center. Everything in Israel is built around this idea. Your glory, your projects, your family, all of it. All of it. And so the Sadducees probably hang their heads and walk away. Because they're like, look, if I have to choose, 
I choose this life. Because they like marriage. They like the things that it symbolizes. They're concerned about their glory, their projects, their family. And maybe, maybe we feel a little bit of their uncomfortability, their discomfort with this teaching. This is so weird. All right, so the Sadducees, they have this very kind of old school, sort of tribal, um, primitive notion of marriage, right? The marriage is about, you know, passing on your your name, uh, your projects, your glory, um, in preserving the integrity of your family uh, through the ages. And so they have these rules about brothers marrying wives to produce heirs and all that. So that's, that's kind of, I mean, that's weird. We can just toss that out. That's crazy, right? We, we got a way better notion of marriage. We've really updated this, and we've made it a lot better. Um, and if you want to know what it is, all you need to do is go to your DVD collection, the old ones, dust them off, get anything that has Disney on it, and then put it in and watch what relationships are about. Right? Oh, Belle. Oh, Belle, it's so difficult. You're the only girl who reads book in the vi- books in the village. And if only, if only you could find somebody who's just like you, who appreciates literature, then you'd be, then you'd be happy then you'd be fulfilled, right? Oh, Ariel, if only you could just, just get above the waves and onto the beach. And with Eric, the, always a prince, always a prince, always rich, of course. Get, get to Eric, then you'd be fine. Then you'd finally have everything your heart could ever have desired. And you will live happily ever after. My friends, we fixed marriage. It was broken, and we have fixed it in our 21st century North American and, yes, evangelical culture. We have decided that what marriage is about is your personal satisfaction. Yes! Your life is meaningless until, what do they say? Until you uh, find the mirror image of your soul in another. And once you have achieved that, then all shall be well. You might even think, you might even remember, you might be like me. I looked at my life up until I, you know, I held out as long as I could. I think I was 28 when I finally uh, got married. 27 turned 28 the three days later, so it's easier to remember um, the date of my anniversary. Uh, up until that time, my whole life was like, was it, what was I thinking about? It's like, all right, not her, not her. I've got to find the one, Right? Nope, nope, disqualified, not quite there, not quite there. And once, and once I have her, my whole life is like a, it's like heading into a, in a funnel and I meet that point, that critical point when we exchange the vows and then kaboom, happily ever after, meaning, perfection, joy. Luckily, my marriage is uh, perfect, so I mean, it, it worked. <laughs> I've, uh, I've gotten the prize. I feel bad for a lot of the rest of you, though. And so you might be a little bit like the Sadducees. You're not so con- you don't look at marriage, you think it's about my glory or my projects or my family, although you might. I think those things are definitely in the mix. They're a little less important because we live in a world of so much material excess. We're not as concerned about you know, pro- passing down property. We're not as concerned about fame because we've got Facebook pages that never end even after we move on. Uh, we're, we're, we have a little bit more t- 
taken care of in those ways. And so we've replaced it. We've replaced it. We make marriage about my personal satisfaction. And so we and the Sadducees are both standing there looking at Jesus. And Jesus says, marriage, resurrection, which is it going to be? Because they're incompatible. And maybe we, like the Sadducees, are having a hard time choosing. Some of you were like me. Like I said, a perfect marriage. Um, Every day, just endless bliss. Um, You know, you wake up and um, she looks like an angel. I obviously continue to look utterly beautiful. And we spend our days in, in, in just constant happiness together. And so we look, we look at this teaching of Jesus and the way that my, my wife did the first time she heard it. We cry. We cry because we're like, God, you're going to take this away from us? We've achieved it. And now you're going to rip it away in the resurrection? What kind of resurrection is this? I want a new one. Some of you have a little bit less than a perfect marriage. But it's still good, right? You still do really care for and love your spouse, enjoy his or her company. And really the real problem in your marriage is, you know, you just have like this one couple, these couple things you could just take care of. You know, the kids are too busy, you don't have enough money, um, you don't, one's sick too much. And And if those things could just be taken care of, then the relationship would be perfect. It would be like Tom and Aaron's. And so you're thinking, I know what heaven's supposed to be about, right? Wipe away the tears, unlimited you know, resources. Suddenly, all those things that are keeping our marriage from going from here to here, those will be taken care of. And then Jesus walks in and says, in the resurrection, they shall not marry nor be given in marriage. And you're like, what? How can you? I was so close, and we were just going to keep hanging on until the resurrection, and then it would be fixed. It would be perfect. For some of you, marriage is hard. It actually is difficult to get along with another person, believe it or not. And so you look at your marriage or your your relationships and you see there's deep damage, deep dysfunction. And you're just holding on because you believe that this is called by God that you're going to do this thing. And so you want to honor that. And then you think, but you know what though? Even that deepest damaged relationship, that will be fixed, that will be smoothed out if we can just get to the end. And Jesus says, oh no, get to the end. I'll break you up. Or maybe your marriage is difficult and this sort of comes as a relief. You're like, okay, there's going to be a time when this will be over and maybe, maybe it's the case that I'll be able to have the thing I feel like I've missed while I was here Day in and day out, I look at these other people and I'm so jealous of what they have and I wish it were mine. And then Jesus says, nope. You're not going to get a second round. Some of you have been divorced. Some of you have remarried. How is it that those hurts won't be fixed and set right somehow? How is it that this second marriage isn't, I don't know, somehow more valuable than the first? What about all these questions? Jesus, how can you deal with that? Some of you haven't been married at all. 
By the way, a lot of free time. Don't, don't waste it, because it's not coming back, ever. I'm only six years in, and I feel like, whew, how we doing here? All right. Oh, okay. I found that what I need to do is I need to get Aaron to sleep very early, because as soon as she's asleep, then I can go downstairs and watch a movie, or read a book, or play my video games, because I'm you know, super mature. Those of you who have not been married, maybe you're looking at life and you're like, you're like I was. You're like, okay, I just got to get to that one point where I can finally achieve the thing. And then you find out that the resurrection comes first before you get it. You've been cheated out of the best thing in the world. And there's widows. And this one is particularly troubling. Those who've lost their best friend. What kind of cheap trick is God pulling that they don't get to have their best friend back like that? Maybe it's really, really hard for us to imagine a resurrection of the dead that doesn't have marriage and it's still good. Maybe it's hard for us to imagine a kind of life that's marriageless and yet joyful, full, perfect. That's the same problem the Sadducees were happening. They're having. They're looking at the idea of resurrection and they're saying, "What about my glory? What about my projects? What about my family?" That can't happen there, and I can't imagine a world that's good without those things. And we might say exactly the same thing about the next age. And what does it tell us about the resurrection of the dead that these things are the case? What does it tell us that Jesus says there's no marriage or, giving, or being given in marriage? Maybe, maybe, the resurrection isn't about me. Maybe my marriage isn't about me. Maybe the resurrection is about God's glory and God's projects and God's family and even God's personal satisfaction. Notice the the familial language that Jesus uses in this text. He says the children or sons of this age marry and are given. But what about the next age? They are sons or children of God. It's God's family that's in view in the resurrection, not my family. And it's not about the the resurrection is not about my name being remembered. It is about God's name being set where it is always supposed to have been, at the highest place. It is about God's glory being spread throughout the world. His majesty. His glory. And it's not about my projects and what I accomplish or don't accomplish in this life. Thank goodness, because I'm failing so far. It is actually about God's project. His ability to look at all of time and say, I have done well. This is good. Look at what I have created. Your resurrection experience is about His project. Your resurrection experience is about God's satisfaction. 
In your resurrection, God's mercy, his justice, his love, his righteousness, they are all summed up. They are all perfected in and through the life and death and free gift of salvation available in Jesus Christ. It is God who is satisfied in your resurrection. And if Jesus' teaching about your marriage in the next age worries you, perhaps it is because you have not known what resurrection is really about. I don't want to leave this in the dust, though. Because from what I understand, the resurrection is going to be awesome. And it is not going to be Failure and loss and misery. It is not as though being sundered um, from what we think of as marriage somehow, somehow ends in just, I don't know, disassociation and, and unfamiliarity. That's not what's going on. And we can speculate a little bit about that, but I don't want to do too much because I think that kind of puts us in the wrong frame of mind again. But we can know that our lives and our resurrection experience will be superlative, will be perfect, will be right because they're not about us. Because they are about God being satisfied, God being glorified, God, his projects being known, his family being together. If we can remember that, then we can believe and we can have faith that our own experience, our own life in the resurrection age to come will be just as perfect and right as it ought to be, even if we don't understand how. You know, Apostle Paul, he, he, he always he uses this phrase, in Christ, in him, over and over. And the idea is that we are united to Christ by faith in the power of the Spirit. And that means we share in his nature, his dispositions, his character. We're completely and fully loving, peaceful, welcoming, holy, and good. We're as intimately connected to the will of the Father as Christ is himself. We are energized and empowered by the same Spirit that came in the form of a dove and landed on Jesus' shoulder and caused him to make the lame walk and the blind see. That is our life in Christ. That is the life that is fully known in the resurrection. It will be for all time. We will see beauty near and in far and in everything. Worship and praise like we cannot imagine will be wrenched from our throats day and night as we bask in the majesty and goodness and gloriousness of the eternally wondrous God. How might people who live like that relate to each other? I suggest to you that it will be for all time, with all people, infinitely better than the greatest moment you have ever had with your best friend. In fact, you might start looking at marriage and really singleness as a signpost pointing to your eternal experience with God in heaven when God is all in all and your love is like his, infinite and everlasting. So don't worry about the marriage thing. Try not to, at least. I just tell Aaron, don't think about it. Just, just put your head down. You know, you know, power through. And my guess is, and Neil and I were talking about this, my guess is, my guess is that when you get there, if you, you know, 
if you've been battling and working hard to create a great um, marriage relationship. My sense is, is that maybe you'll notice that the relationships you have with all and sundry are sort of playing catch-up to what you've already developed with one person. Nevertheless, in order to make that possible, you have to remember what Jesus' teaching is about. He tells the Sadducee, your marriage, man, it's not about your glory. It's not about your projects. It's not about your family. It's not about, to us, your satisfaction. The resurrection isn't about your glory, your projects, your family, your satisfaction. The resurrection is about God's glory and God's projects and God's satisfaction. And if that's the case, then what might that mean for your marriage today? Let's pray. God, we pray that, um, that we'll set our eyes uh, not on the fear of loss that comes with hard teachings of Jesus, but instead, God, with a sure confidence that you're you, that you are enough, and that what you have in resurrection will overflow with joy and satisfaction to us because, God, it is about you. I pray for everyone here, God, that we will surrender our vision of what resurrection ought to be like, what our marriages ought to be like, our vision of of our glory, our projects, our vision of our family, our satisfaction, and we will set that right at your feet, God, and we will say, no, not us, you. Not me, you. And God, I pray that your spirit will empower that, that your spirit will make us like you, and that as we love deeper and deeper with you, we'll love deeper and deeper with others. God, we look forward to an experience we don't understand, but we know will be very, very good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.